This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, we'd be talking about uh, uh, doing a kind of rattlebag type anthology for a, uh, a number of years now, um, quite casually thinking it would be quite an easy thing to throw together. Yes. Um, I, and, and we started um, and swiftly realised it wasn't going to be as easy as we thought, um, mainly due to the fighting. Mainly due to you, actually, you know, and your, uh, your habit of disagreeing with me. Um, yes. Which slowed things up enormously. I'm going to disagree with you again. That's not true. <laughs> Serious. Um, so we thought we would read some poems, because it's a book of poems, and in keeping with the spirit of it, we thought we might do it mostly at random. Um, is that right? Uh, I would say more, more at whim than at, at whim. random, Nick, okay. um, to use uh, Randall Jarrell's uh, famous uh, injunction. Read at whim? To read at whim, uh, which was the way that he felt we should read rather than systematically. We just um, So that was really how we put the book together, as a book that could be read in that way. Um, hence our alphabetizing the book, which was something else we stole from the rattlebag, I think, um, as a way of just seeing what kind of juxtapositions came up in terms of the poems themselves. Um, but we should say something about the, uh, 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 the scope of the book. So it's, um, it's what's the earliest poem? What would it, what Sappho. Would it be? It would be, ah, so what goes from Sappho, which is nearly the beginning, uh, um, to... Muldoon. Which is nearly the end. <laughs> um, so, uh, and we had a kind of artificial cutoff point, which was nobody born after 1955. Um, I, and there are a number of reasons uh, uh, for that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, fr- uh, friendship, I suppose. It, you, it's hard to judge your contemporaries. We talked about that. But also, um, we felt like there was enough to be getting on with with the couple of thousand years beforehand, before wading into the contemporary is that fair? Yeah, I mean, there's always this thing about the kind of myopia of the contemporary and also the fact that you don't know uh, uh, the extent of your own nepotism when you're choosing poems by your contemporary. So I think in order to kind of guard against that, we decided that um, you had to be 60 to get in, at least. Um, uh, and it also kept it a lot cheaper. Yes. Uh, in terms of uh, permission. Yeah, I, didn't, I, was I, I didn't want to say that, but I'm glad you just said it. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it would have been a far more expensive uh, 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 tome if it uh, included the immediately contemporary. But these are poems that have, that have stood up, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, and they don't have much in common other than they're all favourites of ours. Um, uh, some were discovered in the process of looking for poems, but, right. but most of them were just uh, 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 our favourite poems. And that was really the organising principle, I think. Should we read some poems? Aye, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe we'll do some Q&A and that can form the conversation? Well, technically not a conversation, but no. that's, uh, that's, okay. that's fine by me. Would you like to begin with a poem? I don't, I don't mind ever doing it. Yeah. Um, but I think rather than read it when, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll choose something a little more deliberately. Um, I'm going to start with something really scary and uh, of medium length. Uh, and uh, it's a poem, uh, it's half of a, 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 um, a poem, which is two poems, called Two Tales of Clumsy. And it's by one of my favorite living American poets, Gertrude Schnackenberg. Um, and a uh, terrifically brilliant and undervalued um, poet. But which is a poem that I had not seen until you sent it to me. Really? And I knew right. it from the Supernatural Love volume, yeah. but that's not in it. And that this poem is a, just a knockout. I was so pleased to meet it. That was the joy of this book, was that um, it felt like you could share your favourite things with people. Uh, yeah. Um, and the other thing I should say about this poem is um, 
It's a funny one to share, actually, because it's because it's disturbing. It's um it's the only poem that's ever given me nightmares. Um, I mean I mean literally kind of four four a.m. screaming abdab nightmares. Um, the 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 poem is sort of a kind of grand guignol thing, and it's it's um and it's sort of done like stage directions, and it's sort of kind of like a bit of Punch and Judy, but it gets thoroughly out of hand, and it features a chap called Clumsy. Anyway. And this is the first of two poems. <clears throat> two Tales of Clumsy. One. When Clumsy harks the gladsome tingalings of dinner chimes that Mrs. Clumsy rings, his two hands wing-like at his most bald head, then Clumsy readies Clumsy to be fed. He pulls from satchel huge a tiny chair and wiggling his pillowed derriere, hitches up his pants to gently sit. Like two ecstatic doves, his white hands flit, tucking his bib in quickly, and then all thumbs, they brush away imaginary crumbs from knee-high table with dismissive air. With fists wrapped round his giant silverware, he shuts his eyes and puckers up for kisses. In such a pose, clumsy, awaits his missus, rubbing his hungry ribs. But oh... Alack, quite unbeknownst to Clumsy, at his back, the circle of a second spotlight shows that no-no has delivered fatal blows to Mrs. Clumsy since that happy time she summoned Clumsy with her dinner chime. And there is Clumsy's darling lying dead. How like a rubber ball bounces her head as no-no drags her feet first from this life. Then no-no dresses up as Clumsy's wife, his scarf now silhouettes his long hooked nose, his long bones rattle in her frilly clothes as Nono brings a tray of cups and plates into the light where puckered Clumsy waits. Hearing her footsteps soft makes Clumsy take the pucker from his lips and sweetly break into falsetto greetings and then resume his lips into a kiss. But this is doom, and hideously silent Nono stands. When Clumsy parts his eyelids, both his hands fly up as if on strings, and Clumsy screams. The tears squirt from his ducks a dozen screams. His mouth blubbers inelegantly smeared. Where is she, No-No? Oh, I am afeard. Then No-No lifts up Clumsy's trembly chin to, and leans to hiss with loud stage whisper in the big pink ear of Clumsy. My dear friend, No-No, enunciates. This is the end. The second one's even worse. <laughs> yeah. You got to read some cheery? No. No. Good. Um, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read a, a slightly longer piece. We'll do, so uh, maybe we'll do some short lyrics after this, but I'll, I'll read the section seven from Station Island, um, Seamus's. One of the reasons we did this was the Rattlebag, which we discussed, which is an anthology we both loved for years and years, but... It also felt like there was room to do a new one. It had been 30 years or so since the Rattlebag. And I think of that Elliot thing when Elliot talks about... Someone said to Elliot, of course, uh, the, the dead writers are remote from us. We know so much more than they do. And Elliot said, and they are what we know. So it seemed like there was room to put in some of the writers who'd been and, and, and gone since uh, the Rattlebag. So Seamus is in this book, obviously, um, this is section seven of Station Island. It's about um, the killing of a chemist called uh, Willie Strathairn in a hall in Tyrone, where I'm from. And the ghost of this um, guy appears to, appears to the poet. I had come to the edge of the water, soothed by just looking, idling over it as if it were a clear barometer or a mirror. When his reflection did not appear, but I sensed a presence entering into my concentration on not being concentrated as he spoke my name. And though I was reluctant, I turned to meet his face, and the shock is still in me at what I saw. His brow was blown open above the eye, and blood had dried on his neck and cheek. Easy now, he said, it's only me. You've seen men as raw after a football match. What time it was... When I was wakened up, I still don't know. But I heard this knocking, knocking, and it scared me, like the phone in the small hours. So I had the sense not to put on the light, but looked out from behind the curtain. 
I saw two customers on the doorstep and an old Land Rover with the doors open parked on the street, so I let the curtain drop. But they must have been waiting for it to move, for they shouted to come down into the shop. She started to cry then and roll around the bed, lamenting and lamenting to herself, not even asking who it was. Is your head astray or what's come over you? I roared, more to bring myself to my senses than out of any real anger at her. For the knocking shook me. The way they kept it up and her her whinging and half-screeching made it worse. All the time they were shouting, shop, shop. So I pulled on my shoes and a sports coat and went back to the window and called out, What do you want? Could you quieten the racket or I'll not come down at all? There's a child not well. Open up and see what you have got, pills or a powder or something in a bottle, one of them said. He stepped back off the footpath so I could see his face and the street lamp. And when the other moved, I knew them both. But bad and all as the knocking was, the quiet hit me worse. She was quiet herself now, lying dead still, whispering to watch out. At the bedroom door, I switched on the light. It's odd they didn't look for a chemist. Who are they anyway at this time of the night? She asked me, with the eyes standing in her head. I know them to see, I said. But something made me reach and squeeze her hand across the bed before I went downstairs into the aisle of the shop. I stood there, going weak in the legs. I remember the stale smell of cooked meat or something coming through as I went to open up. And then on you know as much about it as I do. Did they say nothing? Nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform, not masked in any way? They were bare-faced as they would be in the day, shites thinking they were the be-all and the end-all. Not that it is any consolation, but they were caught, I told him, and got jail. Big-limbed, decent, open-faced, He stood forgetful of everything now except whatever was welling up in his spoiled head, beginning to smile. You've put on weight since you did your coating in that big Austin you got the loan of on a Sunday night. Through life and death he had hardly aged. There always was an athlete's cleanliness shining off him, and except for the ravaged forehead and the blood, he was still that same rangy midfielder in a blue jersey and starched pants the one stylist on the team, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim. Forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid circumspect involvement, I surprised myself by saying. Forgive my eye, he said. All that's above my head. And then a stun of pain seemed to go through him and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. Should we try and be more cheery? I, well, we're going to have a wee go. Um, we did a lot of reading around uh, uh, the book for the book, um, trying to discover, if you like, new favourite poems. And, and one of the things we were both keen to do was not just to have a, a, a list of famous names. Um, and, uh, uh, and we've made some kind of, uh, um, I think, real kind of odd discoveries. Um, maybe you could read a, f- a few of, of... Because some of the poems in the book have been anthologised a lot, and I think, and, and, and that was quite deliberate, because one of the things that happens to heavily anthologised poems is they stop being read, yeah. weirdly. Um, so this was an attempt to sort of put them against something you would read, and then, uh, and then, and we read Maysfield's, Maysfield's Cargoes again, yeah. you know, um, which is in here. Um, I think I'll read a, a short point by uh, Jared Carter, probably a name you don't know, but a very decent poet. Um, and this is um, a poem called Interview, and the conceit here is clearly uh, <coughs> that it's written in the voice of the uh, uh, African-American musician that's being interviewed by a, a, um, a rather uh, insensitive musicologist. Interview. Now, this here rag is the one they used to call the lost rag. Sort of thing everybody knew, and nobody ever bothered to write down. It was just a few licks, something you'd play, you'd sit and play by yourself when there was no one else around. Maybe it was some old man showed you how to play it a long time ago. You turn off that machine, and I'm going to play it for you now. I said, turn it off.
It's good, isn't it? <laughs> Please, can I have a man who wears corduroy? Please, can I have a man who knows the names of 100 different roses? Who doesn't mind my absent-minded rabbits wandering in and out as if they own the place? Who makes me creamy curries from fresh lemongrass? Who walks like Belmondo in a Buddha souffle? Who sticks all my carefully selected postcards sent from exotic cities he doesn't expect to come with me to, but would, if I asked, which I will do, with nobody else's up on his bedroom wall, starting with Ivy, the famous diving pig, whose picture in action I bought ten copies of. Who talks like Belmondo, too, with lips as smooth and tightly packed as chocolate-coated, melting chocolate peony buds, who knows that piling himself stubbornly on top of me like a duvet stuffed with library books and shopping bags is all too easy. Please can I have a man who is not prepared to do that, who is not prepared to say I'm pretty either, who when I come trotting in from the bathroom like a squealing freshly scrubbed piglet that likes nothing better than a binge of being affectionate and undisciplined and uncomplicated, opens his arms like a trough for me to dive into. That's Salima Hill. I remember Nick said to me this poem, and, uh, and after I read it, I couldn't believe that I hadn't read it before. Um, uh, and I think I remember you saying at the time, it doesn't just uh, uh, ask an important question. I think it... Um, asks the question. Uh, it's a poem uh, called Games uh, by Jack Gilbert. <clears throat> Imagine if suffering were real. Imagine if those old people were afraid of death. What if the midget or the girl with one arm really felt pain? Imagine how impossible it would be to live if some people were alone and afraid all their lives. Yeah. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Yeah. But yeah, that's the, that's the, we talked about how that poem is the end of poetry, really. And I, we, I, tried to, I did a piece in The Guardian last week, and they, they, they did a stupid clickbait title on it about why poetry is the perfect weapon to defeat Trump, which is not at all what I was trying to say. But that, and they didn't like that below the line, as well. I, I didn't see that. I didn't read that thing. But the, the idea of an anthology, particularly like this, which is ordered in sort of a randomised way of having to jump into different people's skin and, and letting other people speak through you again and again. Um, it has to be about that poem in a way. It's about in, uh, finding a space to encounter these bonds with other people, these bonds of suffering or pain or whatever it is, and also joy. So maybe in response to that, I'll read that poem, Field Guide, by an American poet called Tony Hoagland. Um, so we are joined in these bonds of suffering, but also in, in these uh, uh, bonds of happiness, these instants of lightness, let's say, in life. Field guide. Once in the cool blue middle of a lake, up to my neck in that most precious element of all, I find a pale grey curled upwards pigeon feather floating on the tension of the water at the very instant when a dragonfly like a blue-green iridescent bobby pin, hovered over it, then lit and rested. That's all. I mention this in the same way that I fold the corner of a page in certain library books so that the next reader will know where to look for the good parts. It is a book of favourites, so there are some people that get more poems than others. Um, uh, and it was really interesting to find out what those were. I mean, it was the same as true for the Rattlebag. You discover, you know, sort of Ted Hughes's sort of bizarre obsession with Lawrence. Vasco or... Popper. Aye. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of Vasco Popper. Lot. Do we have any Vasco Popper? No. No, of none. Um, <laughs> but we do have a, a, a lot of Plath. Bishop. Uh, a bishop. I think they get, Bishop gets the most. I think she does. Yeah. Um, and, and Frost uh, yeah. comes up a lot, so maybe do a... A frost poem, not one that's super well known. You probably you probably heard this one, but it's, for me, it's one of his most powerful. But you have to be of a certain age, to, I think, to appreciate it, which uh, I am. It turns out, um, uh, it's called "To Earthward." 
Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. And once that seemed too much, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of, was it musk, from hidden grapevine springs downhill at dusk. I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered, shake dew on the knuckle. I craved strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now, no joy but lacks salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard and grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth as rough to all my length. There was a young man from Dundee. (laughs) There was a young man from Dundee was stung in the arm by a wasp. When asked, did it hurt? He said, no, not really. It can do it again if it likes. (laughs) So we we spent a long time trying to work out why that poem was so good. And I'm not sure that we did work out, but it's something, I don't want to kill it by discussing it, really. It's like dissecting. No, but they spent a long time talking about it. I remember you saying at one point, you know, this is the best. I think we were kind of, you know, snowblind. But uh, this is the best poem in the book. <laughs> it's something to do with, uh, if you know Dundee, and, and I know not Dundee, and you're obviously from Dundee, but it's, it's something to do with a kind of refusal. So it should, obviously it should say there was a young man from Dundee who was stung in the arm by a bee. <laughs> but it, whenever it then, whenever it begins to refuse the form, it keeps on refusing the form. I should stop talking about it that's, anyway. That's very Dundee, I think. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of Dorothy Parker and a lot of Edison Vincent Malay. Um, you were more of the Malay th- than me. I know. Yeah. You know, I thought I talked around. <laughs> a wee bit. A wee bit. That's not what you said at the time. Um, she almost sounds like the first line of a limerick, doesn't she? Innocent Vincent Malay yeah. stung in the arm by a wasp. Uh, but Dorothy Parker. Um, I'm sure you'll know this, but it'll always take another reading. Um, Comment. Oh, life is a glorious cycle of song, a medley of extemporanea, and love is a thing that can never go wrong, and I am Marie of Romania. (laughs) They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle tame and meek, that now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms long and small, therewith all sweetly did me kiss and softly said, Dear heart, I like you this. It was no dream. I lay broad waking, but all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking, and I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use new fangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. Sir Thomas Wyatt. God, yeah. I mean, that was the other thing. It was feeling that you'd somehow peaked at Raleigh and, and Wyatt. Yeah, you know, Raleigh. And, you yeah. Know, and it'd been downhill since. But, so that's the poem supposedly yeah. about Anne Boleyn, of course, <clears throat> whenever she uh, moved on to Henry VIII. Uh, this is a poem by the incomprehensibly unfashionable uh, James Merrill. Um, well, he, uh, he's, got, he's comprehensibly. He's, co- he's comprehensibly. Withdraw that remark. Yeah, because the Ouija board stuff is the changing light at Sandover. Changing light at Sandover is, is long, not an easy read. And there's three volumes of it. It goes on for a long time. Do, do you know the changing light at Sandover? It's a long, uh, 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 brilliant in places. Absolutely brilliant. 
point by James Merrill, and I don't know anyone who's finished it, and, it's, and as you say, it's in three volumes. But he claims to have composed it at a Ouija board. Um, I, th- I believe him. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's um, really astonishing. But so it's, James um, Merrill is of Merrill Lynch. So he had too much money to write. He had. It was a man of infinite leisure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> wrote like one. Um, and th- uh, this is kind of inscribed in this poem as well. But oh God, could he write? Uh, so a little poem called "Charles on Fire." Another evening, we sprawled about discussing appearances, and it was the consensus that while uncommon physical good looks continued to launch one as before in life, among its vaporous eddies and false claims. Still, as one of us said into his beard, without your intellectual and spiritual values, man, you are sunk. No one, I love this line so much, no one but squared the shoulders of his own unloveliness. Long-suffering Charles, having cooked and served the meal, now brought out little tumblers finely etched, he filled with amber liquor, and then passed. Say, said the same young man, in Paris, France, they do it this way, bounding to his feet and touching a lit match to our host's full glass. A blue flame, gentle, beautiful, came, went above the surface. In a hush that fell, we heard the vessel crack. The contents drained as who should step down from a crystal coach. Steward of spirits, Charles's glistening hand all at once glowed itself in eeriness. The moment passed. He made two quick sweeps and was flesh again. It couldn't matter less, he said, but with a shocked, unconscious glance into the mirror. Finding nothing changed, he filled a fresh glass and sank down among us. How's this going? Is it going okay? It's go- should we well, read I, some questions or should we read some I points? think we should read a little more. Okay. For eight or nine minutes. Okay. <laughs> Which may seem like longer. (coughs) Theme for English B. The instructor said, go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. I wonder if it's that simple. I am 22, coloured, born in Winston-Salem. I went to school there, then Durham, (coughs) then here to this college on the hill above Harlem. I am the only college student in my class. The steps from the hill lead down into Harlem through a park. Then I cross St. Nicholas, 8th Avenue, 7th, and I come to the Y, the Harlem Branch Y, where I take the elevator up to my room, sit down, and write this page. It's not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22, my age. But I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you. Hear you, hear me, we too, you, me, talk on this page. I hear New York, too. Me, who? Well, I like to eat, sleep, drink and be in love. I like to work, read, learn and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present or records. Bessie, bop or back. I guess being coloured doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So will my page be coloured that I write? Being me, it will not be white. But it will be a part of you, instructor. You are white, yet a part of me as I am a part of you. That's American. Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you. But we are, that's true. As I learn from you, I guess you learn from me, although you're older and white and somewhat more free. This is my page for English B. Um, This was a a favourite poem of Michael Donahue's, um, a poem that he introduced to to many of us. Um, And it's by a a poet called Roger Mitchell. Uh, And it's called The Story of the White Cup. I am not sure why I want to tell it, since the cup was not mine, and I was not there, and it may not have been white after all. When I tell it, though, it is white, and the girl to whom it has just been given by her mother is eight. She is holding a white cup against her breast, and her mother has just said goodbye, 
though those could not have been exactly the words. No one knows what her father has said, but when I tell it, he's either helping someone very old with a bag, a worn valise held in place with a rope, or asking a guard for a cigarette. There is, of course, no cigarette. The cattle cars stand with the doors slid back. They are black inside, and the girl who has just been given a cup and told to walk in a straight line and told to look like she wants a drink of water, who screamed in the truck all the way to the station, who knew at eight where she was going, is holding a cup to her breast and walking away, going nowhere for water. She does not turn, but when she has found water, which she does in all versions of the story, everywhere, she takes a small sip of it and swallows. So one of the things was um, whenever we started to do the book was we just went to poems that we had had sort of been sitting on. for. I had poems on the back of my bathroom door, poems on the fridge. Poems on, I went to those first. And did, poems this, in the fridge? Poems in the fridge. That's where I keep them. Right. <laughs> one of the, this is a poem called Keaton, which isn't in the collective <laughs> bishop, but it was in the, uh, some of the unpublished work that was published in Edgar Allan Poe and the jukebox and I think she had a line through it, but this was always one of became immediately one of my favourite bishop poems. It's about Buster Keaton. It's, it's called Keaton, and I was pleased to have an opportunity to maybe give it a wider dissemination. So you know who Buster Keaton is. I will be good. I will be good. I have set my small jaw for the ages, and nothing can distract me from solving the appointed emergencies, even with my small brain. Witness the diameter of my hat band and the depth of the crown of my hat. I will be correct. I know what it is to be a man. I will be correct or bust. I will love but not impose my feelings. I will serve and serve with loot or I will not say anything. If the machinery goes, I will repair it. If it goes again, I will repair it again. My backbone through these endless etc. is painful. No, it is not the way to be, they say. Go with the skid, turn always to leeward. See what happens, I ask you now. I lost a lovely smile somewhere and many colours dropped out. The rigid spine will break, they say. Bend, bend. I was made at right angles to the world and I see it so. I can only see it so. I do not find all this absurdity people talk about. Perhaps a paradise, a serious paradise where lovers hold hands and everything works. I am not sentimental. Uh, maybe if we read one more each. Um, I'll, uh, I, I, Nick did well uh, stopping me putting lots of Scotch stuff in it. Um, but some got in. Uh, and this is probably my favourite Robert Burns poem. Uh, and it's called Address to the Uncle Good or the Rigidly Righteous. It's a kind of uh, um, attack on hypocrisy. Um, I can't get enough of that stuff at the moment. Um, and it's kind of, uh, Burns does this great trick, uh, and he pulls it off quite a lot, which is he'll start in kind of low Ayrshire Scots and through a kind of imperceptible sort of gradient end in sort of high Johnsonian English, but you don't know quite how he got there, you know, it just he moves it up stanza by stanza. Uh, and you'll probably recognise the uh, 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 at least the penultimate um, stanza of this poem. But I think the last is the best he's, uh, that he ever wrote. Um, the argument is simply that we're not in a position to judge each other. Um, he, he, he does have a, the first stanza is an epigraph that he's worked up from Ecclesiastes that really makes you wish he did the whole Bible, but he obviously didn't have the time to do it. But, um, addressed to the uncle good or the rigidly righteous. My son, these maxims make a rule and lump them eye together. The rigid righteous is a fool, the rigid wise another. The cleanest corn that e'er was dight may hasten piles a coffin, so ne'er a fellow creature slight for random fits a daffin. 
For ye who are so good yourselves, say pious and say holy, ye have naught to do but mark and tell your neighbor's faults and folly, whose life is like a wheel-gone mill, supplied by store of water, the heap at harper's ebon still, and still the clap plays clatter. Hear me, ye venerable core, as counsel for poor mortals, that frequent pass douce wisdom's door for glicket folly's portals. I, for the thoughtless, careless sakes, would here propone defences, their doncy tricks, their black mistakes, their failings and mischances. You see your state with theirs compared, and shudder at the niffer, but cast a moment's fair regard what makes the mighty differ. Discount what scant occasion gave that purity you pride in, and what's half mere than other lave, your better art of hiding. Think when your castigated pulse gies now and then a wallop, what ragings must his veins convulse that still eternal gallop. We wind and tide fair in your tail, right on you scud your seaway, but in the teeth of baith to sail, it makes an uncle leeway. See social life and glee sit down, all joyous and unthinking, till quite transmogrified they're grown debauchery and drinking. Would they stay to calculate the eternal consequences, or your more dreaded hell to state, damnation of expenses? Ye high, exalted, virtuous dames tied up in godly laces, before ye give poor frailty names, suppose a change of cases, a dear-loved lad, convenience, snug, a treacherous inclination. But let me whisper in your lug, there may be no temptation. Then gently scan your brother man, still gently sister woman, though they may gang a ken and rang to step aside as human. One point must still be greatly dark, the moving why they do it, and just as lamely can you mark how far perhaps they rue it. Who made the heart? Tis he alone decidedly can try us. He knows each chord, its various tone, each spring, its various bias. Then at the balance, let's be mute. We never can adjust it. What's done, we partly may compute, but know not what's resisted. Lovely. Um, shall I read one last one then? Aye. But I, I should have taken the time there to work out which one. And we were trying to earlier on work out what we're going to read, and then we realised that it's all our favourite poems, so we couldn't decide. <laughs> I was like, "This is really good." This is really good. No, this is good too. <laughs> um, I'll read a. Uh, uh, I'll read a strange poem by an American a poet called Murray Howe, um, called "The Gate." I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man but grown himself by then, done at twenty-eight, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he used to say to me, and I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So we're happy to try and answer any easy questions that you may have for us. Happy-ish. It's been a huge pleasure listening to you reading poems. Uh, When are you going to bring out an audio version? I'd quite (laughs) cheerfully murder all these poems, uh, and I'm sure um, uh, Nick would as well, and their respective brogues. Um, I don't think I may be wearing after 600... (laughs) <laughs> I think we're doing a podcast tomorrow morning for the FT, aren't we? We're going to read something. Yeah, there's a See, short podcast for the FT, but I don't think that's really what you're... 
But I know, I, I, yeah. I mean, the trouble is, once you start to read it, you just want to sort of not stop. Yeah. I mean, it's like being back in the womb, just, you know, shouting at your you know, favourite it's also nice. People. It's nice not to feel embarrassed by a book because it's not yes. your poems, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's poems that are really good. So you're very, it's like... You finally get to be proud of something yeah. that you've done, you know. You don't have to be endlessly ashamed. I see you have a Robert Graves in there, you, and he had a terrible objection to being anthologized. Robert Graves. Yes, and that's a fierce a, objection to being anthologized. This is yeah. a great advantage of working with the dead, of course. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. They offer no objection. Do you, do you, do you sympathize at all with his, with his views on that? Well, I, 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 clearly not, I think is the short answer. <laughs> um, I, uh, and I know Bishop was, was, was queasy in her own way about um, that. I don't know. What was, can you, because I can't remember or never knew, can you remember his specific objection? I think Yeats uh, tried to get him for. Oh, that's right, that's right, of course. He refused because he. he, he because Laura Riding wasn't he, in he, it. She was, uh, had the stronger yeah. point of view, I think. That's right, yeah. And I, I think, think that may be Laura Riding's opinion. With, in the future, you'd be summed up by that anthologized poem, and people wouldn't read the rest of your work. Something. I think that is a, a, a very reasonable and, and uh, understandable worry is you become that poem and you're reduced to that one anthologized poem. Um, well, is that, is that right, though? Is it not the other way around that if someone is introduced to your work and they like it, they're going to want to read more of it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a, it's, I wouldn't... Yeah, there probably not. are some poets that have been simplified by, by their anthologized Frost, work. Though. for example, has been simplified. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But... I, I, I do. I do think that there, there's an enormous joy in anthologies, like finding stuff that you wouldn't have found otherwise, and that I think that's got to outweigh any kind of preciousness about it. And as you say, Graves is dead. <laughs> <laughs> we did have one poet who initially said yes, and we can't obviously to say who that was, but objected to being um, anthologized, didn't want the work read out of context, so we, we had to pull the work. Was that? Don't say it. Okay. <laughs> but, but why not? No. Anyway. Um, you'll have to excuse me. I'm losing my voice. It occurs to me that a few decades from now, you two yourselves may be anthologized. In which case, what in your canon would you like to be included? Oh, I don't think one should have any opinion oh, on one's no. work. No, you know, I mean, and other cliches that you trot out when when asked these questions. You know, I, do, I would just be glad of you know anything they care to put in. Um, but uh, no, I think it's actually unhealthy to start thinking about that sort of thing. To be honest with you, because it makes you really self-conscious about your own work, and that's 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 a skip and a hop to, you know what Jarrell said of Auden, which is he's become himself to the nth degree. If you start thinking about, you know, sort of your best work, you start to try and write that again, I think, you know, so... Uh, um, I think you learn that the things that you're often proudest of at the time come back to haunt and embarrass you two weeks later. So I'm... I'm, I'm uh, I distrust that feeling of pride. I think somebody said it comes before a fall. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I know that you both teach young writers in your respective universities, and I wonder if uh, the work of these young writers and your engagement with it has led you to see the work of the millennia of older 60s in a different light. To, to see the work of what, Donald? To see, to see the, the, kind of, you know, the kind of work that is now collected in the zoo of the new in a different light to the light you might have seen it in previously? Um, I don't think so. Uh, the, the, you know, the, I, so I teach at NYU, and I taught at Princeton for a few years, and there are fashions in, in writing, obviously, and one of the, the fashions now is poems that are uh, very pr prosy, shall we say. So um, I, what I like to do with my students is show them work like this. I like to take them through poems that don't go all the way to the end of the page and, and try and introduce them to different different work but I think these things just, just go in, in cycles and it hasn't made me think about other work differently. Is that an answer? Uh, isn't I, I think in, in another way I think you know sort of a, 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 one of the things that prompted it and I think you're the same is the fact that we both wanted a set book and we thought, and it's easier just to do it yourself actually you know? yeah. so, it's, um, so this is something that, that, that I w w would teach from I guess. I, think yeah. that's I mean there are, there are um, prose poems in here, there are funny poems, there are limericks, there are you know, 
there's, there's everything we've everything we've we felt in it, and, it, and it was it kind of showed the range of it in some ways and it showed the range of of mood and, and, and what poetry is capable of. But least. there will be sort of, you know, folk will say quite rightly that, it, that it's narrow in genre because yeah. we haven't gone for anything immediately contemporary. So the kind of, the, so the new surrealism or the new whimsy is not well represented in these pages. But, you know, who well, knows if it's going that. to be... Well, but hold on, but like there's Charlie Simmons, there's oh, Charlie yeah, Simmons yeah. is in it and James That's Tate true. is in it and there, there yeah. are stuff, the new whimsy That's is true. never the new whimsy. There's always been, you know, whimsy if we're talking about it. We, you know, there are other things in there that are precursors to stuff now. And sorry, no, that's a point. I'll graciously concede. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're on Skype. We had so many hours on Skype, just fighting. Yeah, not looking at each other's face, putting the, <laughs> putting the wee sticker over the camera on the computer. You know. It's obvious to everybody else, but isn't obvious to me. Um, the title. Could you elucidate us? Uh, oh, the title. Yeah, I know. No, it's, that's a, a, I can't believe I haven't addressed that. It's, um, it's an odd title. Um, we did try others, but that was the one that stuck, and it's a line from Sylvia Plath. Um, so that's where it's from uh, originally. But, but, but it went through a number of... It did. And it is misleading, because there aren't that many animals in it, really, you know, and they're not, <laughs> and they're not new poems, you know, so... so well, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about... We, I think the title is... It was deliberately meant to not. It, it was, was a kind of. It was a triple bluff. It was a triple bluff. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the poems are not new in the fact that, insofar as they weren't published last year, although some of them have been recently published by older writers. But I suppose we were thinking partly of Ezra Pine's statement about poetry is news that stays news. And these poems always felt new to us when we returned to them. So they kind of had an endless newness, I suppose. And this idea of a zoo, not just in the sense of um, animals, but entering a space where you could encounter all of these different strange beasts. So it was partly that. And um, I have to say, it's almost impossible to get a good poetry anthology title. We racked and racked our brains. So this one seemed to have a kind of uh, life to it um, that in lots of ways... uh, uh, seemed appropriate. Yeah. We tried vi- variations on the rattlebag thing, you know, as a lot of them ended up sounding like the rattlebag, you know. Yeah, but less good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the yeah. coal sack. Yeah. We haven't talked about this. Weirdly, the rattlebag was Ted Hughes's title, it wasn't Seamus's title. Is that title. right? Even yeah. though that we thought that assonance was such a heeny thing, but it was Hughes's. It's a Welsh poem that Hughes came across anyway. Right, well, that'll, uh, that'll be why Seamus went for it. Yeah, it's a good cover though. So, so it, as someone mentioned us earlier on, they didn't realise that the cover spelt out the zoo of the new. Someone from Penguin. Someone from Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Emma. <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned at the start that you had uh, a lot of disagreements about choosing the poems. Who's your biggest disagreement about and who won? Uh, we can't say. I mean, that's it's, that's all. Um, what's the legal expression? You if be you get me a glass of wine later on. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we didn't. You say we had a lot of disagreements. Mostly, we are we were on the same page. Certainly on poets, we were on the same page. Mostly, maybe particular poems by those poets, we would have wanted a wee bit of. You look scared now. No, no, I just no. That's the use this expression for many emotions, but one, but one of them is um, mild scepticism in this case. But I think what happened was um, when it came to more immediately contemporary stuff, especially friends of ours. One of the reasons that we had this rule of agreement in place was to make sure you know, sort of at least there was some attempt at countering the kind of nepotism that inevitably you drift into right. when, when when you're talking about the work of friends, you know. Um, so the other person always had veto over, you know, saying, you know, over my dead body. There's a couple of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, okay. Thanks for that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's for bringing it all up again. <laughs> so maybe we could uh, uh, finish off. And, oh, sorry, yeah. sir. Okay, the other side of that. So what, what did you gain by not doing it as singletons, by working together? I think it broadens one's taste. I think you discovered you had favourite poems that you didn't that, that that you didn't know came within your taste. Your taste is broader uh, uh, than you think it is when it's challenged. And, I think. And and you know, poets, you read poetry alone and you write poetry alone. 
But one of the great pleasures of poetry is to discuss it and share it and pass this secret thing on to someone else. So I know we would be both be by nature moaners, um, but actually it's been a lot of fun. I think you would say the same, wouldn't you, Donald? No, I thought we'd agree, you know. Uh, to, Kevin, share, but, to share things. From Dundee fun. and Tyrone. I mean, <laughs> this is actually saying a lot, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's periods of not being fun, but yeah, it was fun. <laughs> like, to share things is fun with poetry. So I think we, to, to, to put the thing together and fi- like find new writers and say, well, what about Janis Ritzos? And then both of us go and read Janis Ritzos for like three days and then think, oh, well, hold on, what about you know, Viswavis Jamboska, and then to go and look at different translations. So it, that's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. And, and if you were doing that by yourself, I don't think you would cover the same um, breadth of ground. So maybe we could just read uh, uh, a wee short poem each just to finish off with a song. Okay. Um, that we haven't chosen have yet. Said, yeah, have you thought about it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'd read a, 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 just a poem by Paul Durkin. He is a, <coughs> an Irish poet. The Cabinet Table... Alice Gunn is a cleaner woman down at government buildings and after seven o'clock mass last night isn't it a treat to be able to go to Sunday mass on a Saturday to sit down to Saturday night TV knowing you've fulfilled your Sunday obligation. (laughs) She came back over to the flats for a cup of tea. I offered her sherry but she declined. Oh, I never touch sherry on a Saturday night. Whatever she meant by that, I don't know. (laughs) She had us all in stitches telling us how one afternoon after a cabinet meeting she got one of the security men to lie down on the cabinet table and what she didn't do to him and what she did do to him, she didn't half tell us. But she told us enough to be going on with. Do you know what it is, she says to me. No, says I. What is it? It's mahogany, she says. Pure mahogany. (laughs) (coughs) Uh, This is a wee point by uh, uh, Wendy Cope uh, called The Orange. At lunchtime, I bought a huge orange. The size of us, the size of it, made us all laugh. I peeled it and shared it with Robert and Dave. They got quarters, and I had a half. <laughs> that orange, it made me so happy, as ordinary things often do. Just lately, the shopping, a walk in the park. This is peace and contentment. It's new. The rest of the day was quite easy. I did all the jobs on my list and enjoyed them, and had some time over. I love you. I'm glad I exist. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.